good morning. I'm grateful this morning to be able to speak to you, and I am grateful to Pastor Josh for asking me to speak today. And um, if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 today. And while you're finding that, let me just say to you that as I begin to meditate on this passage in preparation for this message, the question that presented itself to me was, what does this chapter reveal to us about God? You know, that's a question that I think we should ask every time we read the Bible. What does this passage reveal to us about God? So I began to meditate on the chapter and to make a list of the truths that are found in these 25 verses that are revealed to us about God. And when I looked at those things, which we're going to look at in just a moment, it seemed to me that they could be summarized in this statement. Our God always fulfills his gracious purpose in and through all things. Our God always, always fulfills his gracious purpose in and through all things. God's purpose is never thwarted. Never. And I think one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit laid this on my heart is because we're living in a world that is full of chaos and sin and war and lies and economic downturns and I could go on and on. Sometimes when we look at that, we get the feeling that nobody's in control. I don't know about you, I, 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 I probably watch the news too much. But whenever I look at the news, I think, oh, man, do you, let me ask you this. Do you ever look at the news and feel frustration? If I'm the only one, you just really pray for me. As a matter of fact, you might consider fasting for me. But I have to be reminded, God has a purpose. He is in all of these things. He is fulfilling his purpose. Sometimes in spite of them and sometimes using them. And I don't understand how it all works. But it does my heart good to remember that my God always fulfills his purpose in all things. I told my wife on the way here this morning, I said, I've got so many things. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get them out in an organized way. She said, don't you have notes? I said, I do, but I got a lot more than my notes. You know, God is sovereign. It's comforting to realize that God is sovereign. But God is also good. If God were not good, we could not be comforted by his sovereignty. And if God was not sovereign, we could not be comforted by his goodness. Because if he's sovereign and he's not good, it does us no good to know that he's in control. But if he's good and he's not sovereign, he may want to do all kinds of good things, but if he's not sovereign, he can't get his will done. We must concentrate on the fact that he is both sovereign and good. And because he's both sovereign and good, he always fulfills his gracious purpose in and through all things. In the last chapter of Job, after Job had been through all that he had been through, suffering and trials, the likes of which I doubt any of us 
have ever even come close to experiencing. If anybody in the world had a reason to be bitter at God and not trust God, it was Job. But here's what he said at the end of all that in the last chapter. He said to God, he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Wow, what a thing to say after all he'd been through. God himself said this in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He said, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's our God. I hope that encourages you. I hope if you came in here this morning, maybe overwhelmed by what's happening in your life today, that the message will serve to encourage you and inspire you and thrill you, not because of the preacher, but because of the glory of the God that you are serving and to whom you belong. Our God said in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God always fulfills his gracious purpose in and through all things. Now, before we walk through this chapter, observing that truth, Allow me just to remind us this morning that God has only one supreme purpose. And I was thinking, it, it is one supreme purpose, but it's so multifaceted that you have to keep adding phrases to it. But let me just try to summarize it this way. God's ultimate purpose is the demonstration of his glory for his enjoyment and for the good and joy of his people. God's purpose, his ultimate purpose, is the demonstration of his glory for his enjoyment and the good and joy of his people. Let me give you some passages that bear this. And we are going to get to Matthew chapter 1. I told my wife, I said my introduction might be longer than the sermon. But let me give you some passages that bear this out. Ephesians, and you can turn if you'd like. I, we put the references in the bulletin if you want to look at them later. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And, and we're going to look at this from the concept of God's glory and the good of his people. Listen to it in Ephesians 1.10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and in earth. That's what it's going to be like when God's ultimate purpose is fulfilled. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think he would have taught us to pray that if that was a prayer that was not going to be answered. Folks, listen, let me just remind you, this is so exciting to me. Let me remind you that there's coming a time when the contrast between what heaven is like and what earth is like is going to be no longer. Things on earth are going to be like things in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? absolutely perfectly total conformity to his will and there's coming a time on earth that that's going to be the state of things because there's going to be a redeemed people who have been conformed to the image of his son living both on earth and in heaven and it's going to be a glorious thing and when God looks at those people he's going to see his glory revealed back to him and he's going to take pleasure in it just like he did in creation when he said this is very good and when those people look at their God they're going to be ravished by his amazing glory and that kind of thing is going to go on throughout all of eternity and I'm going to be there 
And you can too. Through this baby that was born in a manger. Oh, it's so much more than just a baby born in a manger. It's, it's part of a much bigger plan. In fact, it's the key part of the much bigger plan. Ephesians 1, look at that again, if you would, please. I got a little sidetracked there. As a, plan for, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. I'm going to show you what that inheritance is when we get over to Romans. Who we've obtained an inheritance. And why are we have, why have we obtained an inheritance having been predestined according, here it is, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We've been given an inheritance. That's our good. And why have we been given an inheritance? For his glory, our good and his glory. Purpose, our good and his glory. That's God's ultimate purpose. And I know you know this, and I'm preaching to you like you never heard it before, and I'm sorry about that. But it's exciting to me, and I don't know about you, but I forget it. And I need to be reminded. Did you notice there... Again, in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestinated to obtain an inheritance. What of the people that have trusted Christ, what have we been predestined to? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. They're good. Now watch this. Those who are called according to his purpose. So in verse 28, we have the good of his people. In verse 29, we have his glory. Because it says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In Ephesians 1, we were predestined to an inheritance. In Romans 8, 29, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I want to suggest to you the inheritance to which we have been predestined is being conformed to the image of Christ. And that's what we have to look forward to. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to it. See, I've got something in me that's very wicked. The Bible calls it the flesh. The Bible calls it indwelling sin, and it's wicked. And there's no redeeming it. It ain't me, but it's in me. And one of these days, it ain't going to be there anymore. That's not good English, but that is good theology. <laughs> it's not going to be there anymore because I am going to be conformed to his image. That's my inheritance. That's my good. And in that good being done to me, I am going to perfectly, hear me now, I'm going to perfectly reflect his Glory. That's what God's doing. God, and I'm ahead of myself a little bit, but God is saving a people for their good and his glory. And nothing can stop that. You know, this war that's going on over in Israel, and I don't want to get into all of that, but I got to think of one day, how should I pray about that? And it dawned on me, I should pray about that this way. Lord, I pray that you'll save people through this. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if a few years down the road we begin to hear stories of how God saved people through all of this? That's what God's doing. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, what is God doing in Matthew chapter 1? He is fulfilling 
his purpose. He's showing us in Matthew chapter 1 how he fulfills his purpose in all things. God graciously works providentially to to fulfill his purpose. Look at verses 1 through 17. We're going to go ahead and start reading the chapter now. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salom, or Salmon. By the way, if you can pronounce those better, feel free to correct me after the service. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeram, and Jeram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Josham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, the 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what we're going to do is we're going to take every one of these and go into every detail of their lives. <laughs> no, we're not prepared to do that. But I do find something very interesting in this list. Now, you know there was more than four women that were involved in all those generations. But God, the Holy Spirit, only chose to give us four women. And I find it interesting as we read this genealogy, we're tempted to read through it rather quickly like I just did, not paying a whole lot of attention. But what we see in this is God working providentially through the natural course of human relationships, natural generations, and natural events to accomplish his purpose. Obviously, we're not prepared to go back and take the time to go, but I do want to look at these four women quickly. And we're going to see in their lives how that our God is so great, so sovereign, so gracious, that he can even take human sin and use it to accomplish his purpose. Now, I'm going to say this several times. God is not the author of sin. God is not the approver of sin. He does not approve of sin. In fact, we're going to read something right now that's going to show just how much he disapproves of sin. God is not the author of sin. God is not the approver of sin. But we can't deny the fact that he does allow sin. Folks, if God didn't allow sin, it wouldn't happen. 
Nobody has ever sinned and heard God say, you messed up my plan. No. And this is the case in what we're looking at here. Look at verse 3 at Tamar. And Judah, the father of Perez, is there by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. We find Tamar's story, Tamar's story in Genesis 38. And allow me just to summarize what the Bible says about her. She had been given by Judah to his oldest son, Ur, to be his wife. But Ur became so wicked that God killed him. Doesn't say what he did. But he became so wicked that God killed him. So Judah told his son Onan, and let's pick it up in Genesis 38, verses 8 through 10, and you can turn there if you'd like, or just listen. He said, go in your, in, um, became so wicked that God killed him. So Judah told his son Onan, he said, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. How would you like to have been Tamar and the first two husbands you had were put to death by God? Well, Judah had another son whose name was Shelah. He promised Tamar that if she would wait for Tamar, if she would wait for him to grow up, that he would give him to her to be her husband. But he didn't keep his promise. So Judah went on a trip, and Tamar found out about it and went to the side of the road and was, where he was traveling. And we pick up the story in Genesis 38, verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that, I may come, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young, young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on her garments of her widowhood. This is not on Netflix. <laughs> this is in the Bible. Well, about three months later, picking up at verse 24, Judah was told, Tamer, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Listen to his response to this. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality, and Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. He said, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. rot -row. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I. I'm glad you're figuring that out. Since I did not give her my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. She had twins, Perez and Zero, and it was through the line of Perez that the Messiah came. What? A sordid story. Judah was an immoral man, and I might add a self-righteous immoral man. And Tamar was an immoral woman. Yet where do we find them? We find them in the lineage of the sinless Son of God. God did not cause them to sin. He did not approve of their sin. Yet in his gracious sovereignty or his sovereign graciousness, however you want to put it, in his gracious sovereignty, he included them and used them to 
contribute to his ultimate purpose of bringing Christ in the world to save a people who would enjoy his glory for all of eternity. What a God is our God. There we have Rahab and Ruth, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of, Jess, of Jesse. Uh, when I first came here almost five years ago, Josh, uh, Josh was preaching through Joshua. And uh, he preached on this story. By the way, he, he went through Joshua, Judges. I couldn't wait till he got to Judges. I've never preached through Judges in my life. And I, I, I don't know that I would want to do that, but I couldn't wait to see how you were going to handle some of those passages. And I was, it was good. I enjoyed it. If you remember that, it was really good. But he talked to us about Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile, and she was a prostitute. And yet we find her in the lineage of the sinless Son of God. What's God doing? He's fulfilling his purpose always in all things. She not only was in the lineage of Christ, but she made it to the great faith hall of fame. In Hebrews eleven thirty one. by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab was a Gentile and a prostitute, and yet God graciously used her to contribute to the fulfillment of his ultimate purpose of bringing Christ into the world for the salvation of people who would reflect and enjoy his glory for eternity. Folks, I just want to remind you the nasty meaning, what seem to be meaningless details of our lives, they're not meaningless. God at this moment is at work in our lives, fulfilling his purpose. Ruth was a Gentile, a Moabite, a Moabitess, I guess is how you say that, a Moabitess. <clears throat> there was a famine in Israel. So Ruth's mother-in-law, their whole family, they went to Moab. And interesting, when you look back at those details, you say, well, God allowed a famine to come because they went to Moab because um, Ruth was going to be in the lineage of Christ. By the way, just a little sideline, God calls the whole world the Roman government to issue an order for a census to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. What was he doing? He was fulfilling his purpose in all things. Always. But Ruth, not going to go into detail here. I find it interesting. She became the wife of Boaz and the daughter-in-law to Rahab. Isn't that interesting? Here's Rahab. Do you think Rahab and Ruth had some things in common? Do you think it might have been comforting to Ruth to realize that her mother-in-law had been a prostitute and also a Gentile? I love the way God does things, but watch this. She becomes the wife of Boaz, the daughter-in-law of Rahab, and the great-grandmother of David, and God used her to contribute to the birth of his son into the world to save a people who would experience and express his glory for time and eternity. Bathsheba. Oh, my goodness. What a story that is. One day when David should have gone out to war, he got up from a nap and he went to his roof, a roof, and you know the story. He took Bathsheba, committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. He, he was in trouble. So he summons her husband, Uriah, to come back and told him to go down and sleep with his wife. But Uriah was an honorable man. He wouldn't do it. So he put a letter in Uriah's hand and said, take this back to Joab. In the letter, he told Joab, put him in the hottest spot of the battle. He did. Uriah was killed. And King David was going to be the Hebrew hero because he took Bathsheba to be his wife. And nobody was the wiser 
except for God and eventually Nathan. That baby's born when it's a few months old. God killed it. Now you read the Bible. That's what the Bible says. God took his life. It says that when he was comforting Bathsheba over the death of that child, she became pregnant. She gave birth to Solomon. They called him Solomon, which means peace and grace. And they also named him Jedidiah, which means loved by God. What? You mean God used a union that started out in adultery, that was clouded by murder, to bring forth the next king of Israel, who became the wisest man outside of the Lord Jesus Christ that ever lived? You mean God did that? Yeah, God didn't authorize them to sin. He didn't approve of their sin. And by the way, David paid dearly for the sin. But it didn't ruin his plan or his purpose. And ultimately, Bathsheba was in the lineage of the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. God works providentially to fulfill his purpose in all things. Secondly, notice with me that God graciously works supernaturally to fulfill his purpose. Verses 18 through 20, would you look at it again with me, please? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph before they, became, they came together, she was found with child not from natural generation like all the rest in the genealogy, but with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of God, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You know, the Trinity is very mysterious. But if you stop and think about the person of Christ, the man Christ Jesus, that's very mysterious. Here's what we know. Mary and Joseph were engaged but did not have relations. She was a virgin. And the Holy Spirit came upon her in a mysterious way that we cannot understand and created within her womb the human body and the human soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me remind you, the second person of the Godhead is eternal. He did not begin in Mary's womb, but through the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, he entered into her womb and became a man. That's amazing, isn't it? That's not something God did providentially. That's something God did miraculously. And not only that, God knew the natural tendency of Joseph would be to believe his, uh, his fiancée had been unfaithful. He knew that Joseph, being a good man, was unwilling to make her a public spectacle and that he would divorce her quietly. But God, once again, supernaturally intervened by sending an angel to Joseph in a dream, informing him that the baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit. What's God doing here? God is graciously working supernaturally to fulfill his purpose. I'm going to get to this in the conclusion. When I said conclusion, you got excited, didn't you? Uh, but the truth is this. God's still doing miracles today. 
oh, not everything that the televangelist says is a miracle is actually a miracle happening. That's not what I'm talking about. But I tell you something. I've heard people give, give testimonies in this church of miraculous things that God did in their lives. I'm thinking of Tina Chambers. I still remember your testimony of what God did there. When in his wisdom, it suits the fulfillment of his purpose, God is still doing miracles. He's intervening supernaturally. God graciously works supernaturally to fulfill his purpose. And then I want you to notice this. God graciously saves, I've been alluding to this all along, God graciously saves a people to accomplish his purpose. Look at verse 21, would you please? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We all know this. The name Jesus means one who saves, one who delivers. And from what does he save? He saves his people from their sins. Through his perfect, sinless life. Through his sacrificial death. Through his supernatural resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ saves all who will ever put their trust in him from their sin. He does this gradually in this life. We call it sanctification. He has begun a good work in you. The work has already begun. Everything that happens in my life, God's going to use to help me be conformed to the image of his son. But one of these days, he's going to do it ultimately, and the work will be done. So he does this ultimately by conforming them to his image. We could say it this way. He became like them so they one day would become just like him in their character. What does that do? That's good for them, and it glorifies God. The good of his people, the exhibition of his glory. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I, I'm looking forward to 1 John in the new year, aren't you? Did you see that on the screen? Right, we're going through 1 John. That's going to be good. Listen to this passage from 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not, has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. You know what that'll be? That'll be God fulfilling his purpose for his glory and for the good of his people. Aren't you looking forward to that day when your character is going to be without indwelling sin? Boy, that's a wonderful inheritance. That's something to look forward to, right? But then what? After we see him, we're conformed to his image, we're made like he is, then what? 
Oh, it gets gooder, better. We see some scenes from heaven. Let me just read them to you. I'm almost finished. Revelation 5, 9 through 14. Listen to this. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Who are, who are the they that's singing? Listen to it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, the lamb, blessing and honor and glory and might be forever and ever. And all the creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I want you to see this. Those people who are giving praise to Christ for what he's done. I never thought about this before preparing this sermon. But when Jesus, when Jesus looks out and sees all those myriads and myriads and myriads of people singing praise to him. Do you know what he sees? He sees the reflection of himself coming back to him through myriads of people. That brings him great glory and pleasure. And when God looks at those people, he sees people that are just like Jesus. And they are an exact replication of his glory. And that brings him pleasure. You know, when he looked at creation, he said, this is very good. I want to tell you, he is going to savor the reflection of his glory coming back from redeemed people who are giving him praise for their redemption. Oh, that's when it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to happen. Are you going to be there? One more passage from Revelation. Revelation seven thirteen through 17. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, the good of his people. And listen to this. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. The good of his people and the reflection of his glory. Throughout all of eternity, these people will glorify God and enjoy him forever, having been conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God looks at them, it will bring him pleasure because they are reflections of the glory of the Son with whom he has always been well pleased. I just thought of this verse this morning, so I thought I'd put it in. We're talking about Jesus reflecting the glory of God and us reflecting the glory of God because we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 1.3. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for our sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high thou shalt call his name 
Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That phrase, save his people, has so much more than just walking an aisle and repeating a prayer to escape hell and go to heaven. Oh, there's so much more to that. It involves being conformed to the image of Christ for our good to give glory to God for all of eternity. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. Last point. God works, God graciously works according to his word, according to his word to fulfill his purpose. Look at verses 22 through 25. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The words that God spoke to Joseph came to pass, just like he said they would. And the words that God spoke to Isaiah hundreds of years before that came to pass, just like he said they would. Folks, do you realize how many hundreds of years that God's people looked for the Messiah before he finally came? But he did. We don't know about God's timetable, but we know this. He graciously works according to his word to fulfill his purpose. God has not left his people in the dark about his purpose. He's not left us in the dark about how he's fulfilling his purpose. He's given us a book. He's revealed himself to his people and he will always work according to this revelation. And we may not know all the details between now and the ultimate fulfillment of his purpose, but we can know through his word what we have to look forward to when his purpose is ultimately fulfilled. So in conclusion, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ reveal, reveals to us our God always fulfills his gracious purpose in and through all things. He does this providentially, supernaturally, through the salvation of his people and according to his word. That's the message. So I want to give us some points of application and then we'll be done. The world we're living in, as I said at the beginning of the message, seems so dark. So much sin and evil and heartache, and sometimes we can become tempted to despair. But remember, our sovereign God has a gracious plan and purpose that cannot be thwarted. He's working out all things for his glory and the good of his people. Trust him. The hymn writer that wrote the song, This Is My Father's World, the last verse of that hymn goes like this. This is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong God is the ruler yet this is my father's world the battle is not done Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one what a glorious verse that I would say this God is still doing miracles today. He's still intervening supernaturally when it pleases him to do so. Trust him to do so as he sees fit in your life. You need a miracle? Ask him for it. Trust him for it. Trust God. Christian, 
Don't lose sight of the glorious future that God has for you. Don't lose sight of it. It's necessary that we occupy our hearts and minds with the details of this life. But every once in a while, I think it's good to stop and think about what we have to look forward to. Because of the babe that came through a virgin's womb, his glorious purpose is going to be fulfilled. Boy, every once in a while, I just like to read those passages in Revelation and just savor it. Especially where he says he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. Wow, what's that going to be like? Then I would close with this. If you're here and you're not sure that you're one of his people, or maybe you just flat out know that you're not saved, you're not one of his people. I got some good news for you. If you desire to be saved and get in on this glorious purpose of God, you can. You know why? Because the Bible says, whosoever will, let him come. Let him come. You can ultimately enjoy the scenes from heaven about which we were reading this morning. If you're not sure or you have questions, I want to invite you to come right down here. There'll be somebody who will be able to counsel with you and show you how you can get in on this glorious purpose. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that you'd strike from memory anything I said that was distracting from the message. And I pray that, Lord, as only you can, that you would rivet this truth home to us. That your purpose is the demonstration of your glory for your pleasure and for the good and joy of your people. And remind us how that's going to be fulfilled in eternity and how you're working at it even now in our lives. And Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know if they're going to be part of that, but they want to be, I pray, God, you'd draw them to yourself. Show them that Christ is the answer. He's more than a babe in a, man in a manger. He's not in a manger. He's not on a cross. He's not in a tomb. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, sovereignly ruling and bringing about the fulfillment of his purpose. And we'll thank you for all these things in Jesus' name.